Hello, you little rats, Kallians. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bell. And today, we're riding solo. Two and one, which means you and I count as one. I like that, it's very sweet. You're welcome. <laughs> um, today, we're getting really nerdy and we're diving into the science of HRV, heart rate variability and how you <clears throat> we talk about how you can utilize hrv to make more or better informed training decisions um we go really deep as far as what the physiology of your nervous system is we talk about the heart talk about the autonomic nervous system the tug of war between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and then we leave you with some pretty amazing pearls on how to optimize your heart rate variability and start tapping into your parasympathetic state, recovery state, so you can train harder, feel better and live longer. And reap the benefits of all the hard work you're doing yeah. by helping you actually make progress. Exactly. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Go Strong Equipment. Uh, check them out at GoStrongEquipment.com or at Go Strong, uh, Equipment on, is it Go Strong Equipment? Go Strong equipment. Well, I'm having a brain fart right now. Because we've been podcasting for two hours. <laughs> Go strong equipment on uh, on Instagram. Um, they're the best. Tim's the best. The whole company is awesome. And uh, they've, they've been making some of the coolest stuff. All the big federations are starting to use their equipment. Mm -hmm. The monoliths, the competition benches. Just came out with an awesome new product called the Fusion Bench, which is like a competition bench that is combined with an incline bench. So instead of having to have two big huge clunky pieces of equipment in your gym you can now just have the one a competition bench that adjusts into an incline so that's actually really cool and it seems like such an like an obvious everything's obvious once it's been discovered mm -hmm. but it's amazing that no one had made that prior to to ghost mm -hmm. but anyways check them out they're always coming up with new stuff and um that one that idea actually was by our very own alex uh Usler, so he just got his own and, and he named it, it the Fuselar. <laughs> I feel like Tim should change the name to Fuselar. It's pretty cool. I like it. It's a good name. It's yeah. a good name. But um, if you don't know who Alex is... Doesn't matter. It's still a good name. That's true. That yeah. is good. Uh, also, as always, tag us at Hybrid Unlimited, at Sipicone, at Himbo on Instagram when you're listening uh, in your stories, when you're listening to this podcast, and you'll automatically be entered into a draw to win the next hybrid apparel drop, the full drop, that's everything. So it's a huge value and uh, it's the, the best lifting slash streetwear gear you're gonna get. And uh, we choose people every month. So do that, sit back, relax, enjoy another episode of the Hybrid Unlimited. Anyway, so today we're gonna be talking about stress, recovery and HRV, otherwise known as heart rate variability. I'm actually gonna be um, citing a presentation or a lecture that I wrote a few years back for Powerlifting University that I honestly haven't revisited in a while. And um, I've always wanted to kind of talk about this either either again in a lecture, a podcast or a YouTube video. And, and I don't know, I haven't gotten around it, but I think there's so many good, good um, uh, key learning points here in this presentation that I think would be very valuable for our listeners. I don't think that stress and recovery is a topic that gets much attention or much press because it's not a sexy topic. You know, people want to know 
how to get strong how and how to get strong fast right like mm -hmm. people want to know if there's any sort of secret technique or secret training modality or a new training modality that will allow them to progress faster and break through plateaus and um you know they tend to overlook the basics of what makes up uh optimal uh human performance which is centered around uh recovery really stress management recovery nutrition sleep those are those are the biggest kind of variables that the the only controllable variables you really have and the ones that are going to really make the biggest difference in the short and long run yeah i mean we both played around with this have you been using it in your training you know recently not as of well actually i just bought myself an aura ring Mm -hmm. which is one All of the, right. it, I think is one of the best ones that they have out there so far. Ben actually got me on it and, uh, I love it. You know, the, the data that it gives you is really good and accurate and it's seamless. It's just a ring. It tracks your, your it gives you a sleep score, how much time you spend in REM sleep versus in deep versus light sleep it tracks your steps. It tracks your heart rate. And then obviously it gives you a high variability score that we will, um, get into later on to this podcast do you have to input any data into it to get your hrv score no it just gives it, it's it's uh, an, an algorithm that's really nice you think it's as accurate or the most accurate way i mean i did uh i used an app called hrv for training once but it was first of all it didn't track me 24 7 like the order that already does. makes it completely inaccurate really mm -hmm. but is it, it makes it made you because i now i remember the one that you're talking about mm -hmm. you would Take your heart rate first thing in the morning. Right. As soon as you wake up. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would input a bunch of information like... It would be a questionnaire. It's like, how are you feeling today? Same yeah. questionnaire every day. But, yeah. you know, yeah. Are you, do you feel tired? What, what, like, you know, are you experiencing more or less stress than usual? Did you have a hard training day yesterday? Or like rate your how difficult your training was out of 10? Like all, all different factors like that yeah that's that's one of the good things i think that's one of the good things about that particular that particular uh software was that it did take into account subjective measures of recovery mm -hmm. by asking you a simple questionnaire uh like a self-report questionnaire but this one this one doesn't but the fact that it's tracking you 24 7 and that you don't really take that off at all i think makes it very very accurate and and also easy to use like you're not gonna miss inputting your that was a thing i'd the last thing I wanted to do first thing when I woke up in the morning was go through a pretty like, I guess not that comprehensive, like go through a questionnaire or you just forget. Yeah. You know, but it did track some interesting things. Like it would ask if you drank alcohol, like if you had alcohol and if so, how much? And uh, I can't remember exactly what else, but mm -hmm. basically just a bunch of lifestyle factor questions. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's get, let's get into it, into this. So initially when I got into HRV and got interested in, in learning more about what it was and how I could start using it in my training, it was through learning about the work of Joel Jameson. He actually wrote a pretty good book. It's one of my favorites uh, on the topic of training. It's called uh, MMA for Fitness and Performance. Oh, and yeah. I think that the top, the, I always say this, the title doesn't do justice for what's inside the book because it's so much more than that. It goes really deep into energy systems and talking about how to train for specific sports and what's happening in terms of energy demands and how to actually create uh, training adaptations for the different sports, utilizing those energy systems, et cetera. 
um, it's a, it's an amazing book and I really like him. Actually, I would love to have Joel Jamison in, in our podcast. I'm going to reach out, mm-hmm. but, um, I really love, I think I took his online, uh, either took his online course or read one of his free PDFs, but he explained that the, the way that most people approach fitness nowadays is by pushing the limits of fatigue during training. And they essentially think about recovery as extra credit. It's worth a few extra points if you get it done, but it's not a big deal as long as the main assignment, which is your workout has already been turned in or has already done. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'm definitely guilty of that. And I think, I think like just so many people are guilty of that. You don't think about, well, yeah, because here's the thing. Like we, you are always going to give up things that are a hassle for things that you enjoy if you're not disciplined, right? And we all enjoy training, like everyone who takes training seriously. That's why we do it, right? Like no one competes in powerlifting because they hate powerlifting. So like doing extra work in powerlifting, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. But then it's like, do I want to go to bed at 8 p.m. or do I want to go out and have a couple of beers or do I want to do X, Y, or Z activity that may not align with my goals, you know? And a lot of people, you know, I've definitely been on both sides of it where I've I've made those sacrifices and not done it, but I've also given into those and and not sacrificed. And I could see that being a big part of why people do it. Yeah. It also seems, or I also think that one of the reasons why people, people don't necessarily pay too much attention to their recovery techniques is because the effects of them are not immediate, Mm, you know, and They're they're cumulative and they're very difficult. If they're very difficult to, um, quantify right? Like whether or not it's the particular recovery technique that you're doing is actually working or it's mm-hmm. not and to making... compare them as hard, like which one works better than another. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I think, but eventually I think we all get to a point where we're almost forced to really pay attention to those recovery techniques. And, and, and that goes hand in hand with, uh, it's actually a topic that's in my book. It's the concept of, um, damn, I'm blanking out. And the, the invincibility personality or invincibility complex mm-hmm. where you just think that you just think that you're invincible, that you can do more work than anyone else and you're not going to suffer any consequences and that your body can take all the beating in the world. And it's really not the case. So mm-hmm. especially for young lifters or young athletes out there, you know, take this from an old fart, a veteran, the game, oh, uh, <laughs> you want to take your recovery Seriously. And, and you really want to understand the components of optimal recovery and how those really impact your training. You know, in my opinion, I think recovery is just as important as training and implement, implementing these recovery techniques essentially are going to allow you to improve your performance both during training and during competition. Mm-hmm. And yet, even if you're young and you feel like you, you are getting away with it, I feel like the earlier that you start incorporating these these habits and actually making them habits, mm-hmm. the the easier it is to do it when you're older and you need them. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, I mean, I, le- I kind of learned the hard way with, with mobility and warming up and all that stuff. Remember I used to tell you, I used to literally walk into the gym and the first thing I would put on the bar and, and for well, weightlifting for snatch would be 70 kilos. Yeah, I would just no, walk in crazy, and yeah. snatch 70 kilos until one day I walked in and tried to do that and I missed it. You know, and at that at that time, <laughs> that I, happened to me. At that time, I like I could snatch 145 kilos, so like to miss 70 was ridiculous, right? So and I was it's like, so embarrassing. Yeah, eh? what's up with that? I'm like, I, everyone who doesn't know me, I promise I'm good. <laughs> I missed a 35 kilo snatch one time warming up, and I was like, 
Oh. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, but it was just like my shoulders for the first time ever. Like, just didn't Wore feel tight. warm, and I caught it out front like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I guess oh I have to do God, this you, I thing. feel so incompetent when that happens. <laughs> that used to, you imagine missing like a, a 60 kilo squat? <laughs> yeah. Gee, well, so that's going to happen to us when we're like 70. We're going to be like, oh. Now we, got, now we have to do a more comprehensive squat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. How, how would that even work how would we miss it just fall <laughs> let's, try, let's try not to ever get there yeah no. <laughs> anyway so today we're pretty much going to be talking about heart rate variability and what its applications for specifically for powerlifting lifting in general are and uh, i want to make an argument for why i think it's a valuable tool for strength athletes and i want to discuss ways in which you can improve your hrv scores so let's start with the basics Hayden, do you know what HRV stands for? Heart rate variability. Yeah. And um, essentially, it's a tool that can be used. And when it's used appropriately, it's used to adjust uh, or individualize your training load prescription in order to minimize your injury risk and optimize your performance. So I think the main thing here with heart rate variability, and um, it's something that actually Andy Galpin talks about in his book, Unplugged is how are we utilizing this this data and essentially technology that is available to us to inform our training, right? And I think that the main issue is that people tend to rely way too much on these numbers and completely lose, lose touch with the way that their bodies are feeling to the point where they're unable to make a decision without looking at the data. So that's one issue. And the second is issue mm-hmm. is the inability to interpret data. So you're looking at these numbers and you're not, you don't do your research into what an H, what's a good HRV score. Is it a high one, a low one? What, what HRV score is your particular device giving you and what does it mean, right? Like is an individual HRV score, uh, uh, low HRV score, score mean that you're not ready for that training day or two days of HR of a low HRV or three or a week right. or two, right? Like, I think it's important that when we do use this technology that we understand what it means and, uh, for our training so that we can make changes, either, either take our training up a notch, take it down a notch or sure. do nothing. Cause maybe sometimes, and this is something that I actually talk about in this presentation, sometimes you get, you get uh, low HRV scores or, or negative HRV scores at a time where you're supposed, where you're supposed to score low because you're in an accumulation phase, right? right. So an accumulation phase is basically you're ramping up your volume, leading out, leading into a competition at which time you're supposed to feel, you're supposed to feel like crap. You're supposed to feel tired and sluggish and lethargic and, and you're not supposed to feel great in training, right? So I think a mistake that people would make, and even, even in the absence of data is that they assume that these negative, negative training signs uh, are mean that you have to take your foot off the gas when actually it just means you gotta just keep pushing, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's I guess that's the third part, like understanding how this how this data compares or plays in to the to the phase that you're in your your training block. Yeah, I also think like like you said, it, I feel like it should be looked at like a tool. It shouldn't be the end all be all because I think people who who think too much about it need to be or too like detail oriented kind of need to be careful with that because what if you're feeling great like you're having a great day it's the day of like your mock meet or an actual meet 
you're ready to go and you look at your HRV score and it's garbage. Right. You know, and now you're in your head because you're like, oh, this this app is telling me that I'm not prepared, mm-hmm. you know, based on all this data. And it's like, damn, I thought I was prepared. And, you know, I, I think there's some head cases in, in every sport, you know, people who get in their own head and that could really mess you up. Yeah, for sure. Looking at, yeah, you look at your data and whether it's conscious or subconscious, if you know that you're a suggestible person that you know, you're going to see it and then you're, you're going to be bummed out because, because your HRV score is not perfect and you have a max out day. Mm-hmm. If you're that type of person, then, you know, maybe tracking your HRV is, is, is not for you. Right? Or you have to come up with some sort of strategy, like right. the week of your meet, you don't look at your HRV score or the day of your meet or something like that. Right. Um, all right. So anyway, basically what we're talking about here is stress and stress can come in many forms. It could be physical stress, mental, emotional, social, whatever it might be. Um, and it can have possible negative effects. Like you have trouble falling asleep, you have anxiety, you're depressed, you're uh, have an increase in fat accumulation due to cortisol increases, which happens to a lot of people. But the reality is that stress is also necessary for life and can can actually have positive adaptations. For example, for muscle growth and strength, like it's impossible to grow a muscle if you don't stress that tissue, right? right. It's impossible to get stronger tendons if you don't put load upon that tissue. And you can't just relax your way into strength. I, I, w- I wish that was the case. <laughs> but... um. Essentially, training is just another form of stress that is absolutely necessary in order to produce uh, positive training adaptations. Um, If it wasn't for that, then we essentially couldn't make any progress inside the gym. Right. So here's a little background about the physiology of of stress. So essentially, we sense the stress through our ears, our eyes, and any other senses. And we send this information to our brain, our heart, and any other organs. And then... We essentially make a decision about how we're going to deal with that with the goal of keeping all of our internal processes that are essential for life stable or in homeostasis. A perfect example for something like this is temperature. So if our ideal body temperature is 98 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the temperature we need to be in order to allow for all the chemical reactions in our body to occur. Um, our bodies are amazing in that they will either release heat or increase our internal heat in order to keep us within that normal range. And the concept the, or the process in which we do that is called allostasis. It's the process that we use in order to maintain uh, our, our internal body environment stable. So how, we, how do we do this in the face of challenges like poor sleep, work getting in the way or training? This is an adaptive process that helps us maintain balance throughout the ups and downs of the regulations of hormones. And what happens when set points and other boundaries go beyond the limits of homeostasis is is known in literature as an allostatic state, which is an imbalance of the primary mediators. And the way that our body responds to acute challenges with this, that leads to the adaptation. So now that was a lot of scientific jargon so let's talk about a more practical practical and relatable example which is training stress and we basically we briefly touched on that when we talked about the accumulation fatigue and and what that means for our bodies and how that presents itself so if we have a baseline of fitness and then we encounter a new training stimulus or an added stress our baseline of fitness is going to naturally go down causing a negative deviation from baseline. If you've, you felt that in, in powerlifting, right? Like mm-hmm. 
in that in the middle of that accumulation block, you're usually you, it's almost like you start performing worse, right? Like there's a dip in terms of your performance. Yeah, you you go from like loving training and excelling every session to basically just surviving until you get to a deload. Exactly. Um, right. And, and when you essentially, when you get to that deload part and you remove that, that huge stress, you begin the process of recovering or compensation, mm-hmm. you know, which in, in, in that will ideally allow us to either return to baseline or above and, and improve above is super compensation, super compensation. Um, but what happens if you prolong the exposure to that stress, which is overtraining, um, it's that you increase a training load with insufficient recovery is what happens. And at that point, your body's not going to be able to meet the demands that is being put through. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's where, where I guess intelligent programming comes in and, and the understanding of these different phases of training come in. And also taking responsibility for your training. I know we've mentioned it a number of times on the podcast, but just because you get a program from a coach or a company that says you have to hit a certain number or do a certain exercise, you know, doesn't mean that that's the law and you need to be able to, to regulate yourself based on how you're feeling day to day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so something that is really interesting that I actually learned through listening to one of Mark Bell's podcasts where he had Joel Jamison as a guest. And I think I told you about this study. It was, um, a study about energy conservation. It's called Constraint Total Energy Expenditure and Metabolic Adaptations to Physical Activity in Adults. Remember that, that I told you? Catchy title. <laughs> Do you remember that I told you? So it was about... I explain it. Jog my memory. Yeah. So in the study, pretty much they measured their actual calorie expenditure versus the activity levels in five different groups of people in the U.S. and in, and in Africa. So they talk about... They talk about how the human metabolism actually has an upper limit for how many calories it can actually produce. So I always thought that, you know, the like, more, like it can use, it can produce like the energy that the ATP right. that your body makes. Oh, okay. So I always thought that it was an infinite number, right? Like independently, if, if you want to run 12, 15 or 100 or 150 miles, right. there's an infinite amount of ATP that your body can produce. And that's what I thought. But what this, what this study found was basically they found that there's an additive model and a constrained model. So in the additive model, they, they used to think that the higher level of activity that you do, the more calories you burn, which is what I was saying, mm-hmm. versus the constrained model, which is if you go from sedentary to active, you might see a bigger change in the amount of calorie, uh, the amount of energy produced. But if you go from active to more active, then there's no increase in the energy expenditure beyond a certain point. So How, do you know what that point is? Yeah, no, I don't think they, I don't think, I don't think they were able to quantify that. But it's gotta be quite a, quite a high level yeah. of activity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also remember that your body adapts, right? I think, I think that it might not necessarily produce more energy, but it'll slow down other processes in order to meet the energy demands of certain your organs and your basic body uh right processes essentially so in yeah and that's exactly what they talk about in this study is that our body has a limited amount of energy that it needs to allocate for for all life-sustaining processes that it has 
and, and to survive. So if you're, you know, you're working throughout the day, you're commuting, you're learning, you're stressing, living, training, whatever, which all requires a certain amount of energy. Recovery is also a process that requires tons of energy. And when you reframe that like that in your mind and you understand that it's kind of like a separate adaptation, it's a separate, it's a separate box in, in, in the big scheme of training that you also have to like allocate training and training yourself to get in a state of recovery mm-hmm. and allocate time, then it really, I think it change it can change your approach completely. And I know it has changed mine. So if you understand that your body will make sure that all of your basic activity needs are all met before it devotes any of its energy uh, towards the process of remodeling tissues and healing or rebuilding muscle. It's, it's why we need to prioritize recovery. And that's why it's so important. That makes sense. So to summarize that, because we said a lot of things there, basically what this paper said was that no matter how much activity you do, at a certain point, your body's going to stop allowing you to burn calories through activity. But it's not necessarily burning calories. It's the process of generating ATP. So it's the Krebs, Krebs cycle, right? right? There's only a certain amount. Your mitochondria can only spin so fast and, and create a, a, create so much ATP in that process. Uh, okay. So yeah. what it's saying is that the process of creating this energy for the purpose of, um, you know, your... Neurons. It has a max rate. Yeah, it has a max rate, exactly. The yeah. speed at which your mitochondria can produce this ATP has a max rate. And those things are going to be allocated to specific things in your body, like making sure that your neurons in your brain are firing or like making sure that blood is pumping through your heart, to your lungs and to the rest of your body, et cetera, right? That your liver right. is able to like um, get rid of toxins and et cetera. But remodeling your muscles for the purpose of recovering from your workout is very low, low in the priority list of your body. So it's saying, look, you have a limited amount, you have a, a limited, uh, a speed at which you can, uh, at which you can produce this currency of ATP. And there's a finite amount of that. So it's like, you, you need to conceptualize that because look, I'm a workhorse and you know that I could stay mm-hmm. in the gym for eight hours and train the entire day. Yeah. Okay. You know, by will and energy, I can do it, but that I'm not going to make any progress because of that. This is why re- setting time aside to recover is so important. And that's why I always say, man, um, going to the gym and doing, um, a CrossFit Medcon is not recovery. Oh, oh when people say like active recovery and then they max out their snatch or something. Yeah. Or, or, or they do a short 35 minute long. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You see that all the time. Yeah. Like, uh, you're right. Especially in CrossFit, I think because that sport is like how you get good at that sport is just being able to handle so much, like having such a big uh, gas tank mm-hmm. work capacity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So talking about gas tank, and, and your, and your ability to, in, in the amount of essentially energy that you're expending. I mean, look, this argument has been, has been discussed so many times about weightlifters and powerlifters who just don't understand the value of cardio. I think there's, it's ass backwards when people just try to think about the things they choose exercises and training modalities on the basis of, of whether or not it 
it looks exactly like what they have to do in comp. Yeah. What's the word that they use? Carries over. Oh, carry over. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not it directly carries over to a particular movement. Like how many times have you heard weightlifters say that they don't low bar squat because it's going to mess up their clean or powerlifters say that they're not going to have front squat because whatever, sure. or, or that they're not going to do, they're not going to walk more than then from the squat rack to the chair because it's gonna it's gonna make or they, him they don't care about uh, gains or whatever or they don't care about like having proper mobility because they only need the mobility that's required for their sport like all those all those little things you know why i think those things are so popular because mm. it gives you what you feel like is a legitimate excuse to not do things that suck absolutely they're convincing Nobody, themselves if you're a power lifter you're probably there because you don't enjoy cardio you, you chose that the, the yeah. activity that requires the least amount of cardio possible. Literally, powerlifters think sets of five are cardio. You that post is a set so of, sad. Honestly, that is so sad. Yeah. I mean, and we are powerlifters, so we're allowed to say this. There are people. <laughs> but I right, mean, but you know what? To all powerlifters that are listening to this, hopefully this will this will change your perspective. And and the point that I'm trying to make now specifically. So you're right. I think it's just like they're trying to convince themselves for for why they're not doing nobody it. Nobody likes doing mobility work. It's Boring as hell. Exactly. Cardio. If you like cardio. And you know why? Something's wrong with you. You know why they don't see, they don't see, they don't understand the importance of actually doing cardio or doing uh, any sort of exercise that challenges your muscle endurance, you know, your ability to perform multiple reps and, and to mm -hmm. get out of breath and challenge your, your cardiovascular system as well, is that as a new lifter, you're definitely not you, you have not felt the, the true effects of accumulated fatigue right. on your body, right? Like, and I remember this as a young lifter, like if you're, if you're lifting relatively light, no, sorry, not relative, in terms of absolute weight, mm -hmm. if you're lifting a low amount of weight, say you're lifting, I don't know, a hundred kilos, 120 kilos, we're all made out of the same bones, the same muscles and the same tendons and the same stuff, right? That in, in absolute terms, that is, that is not a lot of weight. So the amount of stress that is placing on your body is not the same amount of stress that 500 kilos placed on Thor's body when he deadlifted it. 501 right. kilos, sorry. Yeah. So go ahead. I, I, you just got me thinking. It's crazy that there are some people who break that mold. I mean, there always is with every sort of rule. But I was just thinking of Jamal Browner and that guy deadlifts a thousand pounds like every week. No, not every week. I think he gets up like 900, very 900 plus very, very often. Mm, I don't think it's every week because not I think every it's week, like, not a thousand every week, but he, I think it's like every, like once a month he gets close to that. Still, That's crazy. No, that is he deadlifts crazy. frequently. And, and you're right. I mean, there are some people that, that, that are just like freaks, right? That, but that we, we shouldn't be basing our training advice on the outliers. We shouldn't be basing any advice on outliers. It's just, there's some people that are freaks and, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. But in general, the more absolute load they you move as a human, the longer it's going to take you to recover. Right. That's the point. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, going back to the, the topic of, of, um, energy, energy expenditure is essentially correlated to the amount of work that you're doing there. They actually discussed in stronger by science, an article where they found that for a particular individual, I think it was a case study doing four sets of eight of deadlifts with 175 kilos burned about a hundred calories. So one set would burn 25 calories. 
So if that same person that lifts 350 kilograms for a set of eight, then he'll be burning 50 calories, right? So just like that, the energy requirements for lifting pile up as you get stronger, it'll get more and more difficult for you to recover from sessions because the energy demands for that particular movement are also uh, exponentially increasing. And this is pretty much my argument for why you need to be working on your conditioning early on and why having a broad base of physical preparedness is so important, especially at the beginning. It's like you need to have a good, and not only at the beginning, but you need to have specific training phases where you're expanding your, your conditioning, where you're expanding your cardiovascular endurance so that you can enter those, those harder training phases where you're, where you're moving more and more and more and more weight. And you can meet the energy demands of that your body is placing on you. Yeah. So basically, I mean, that's, I guess that's my argument for why I think doing some, some type of conditioning is so important, not only early on, but in general, like periodically throughout the year in between your training cycles. Yeah. I'm, I saw a good benefit from that. Absolutely. And not even in a, there's a lot of, a lot of things that you do in, in training that you don't feel a direct benefit from, but it was for me, at least having that period of time where we did lots of circuits and things that got our heart rate up for prolonged periods of time, literally from one training cycle to the next, I was recovering way better, way faster. Wasn't getting winded doing high rep, like sets of Mm -hmm. squat uh, or deadlift, you know, it was like. Dude, I remember there was a point where I was like, I would do a, a set of squat, like at like high rep, like eight or even six. And then I would have to like lie on the floor. I remember that. Because <laughs> I was winded. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn, I used to have good endurance. And then this happened. But then, you know, we started doing what I said. But here's, I think what's confusing to a lot of people is that they don't really understand how to program concurrent training. Right. They don't understand how to, how to merge, uh, conditioning with strength they think they they think that they are going to interfere with each other which they might obviously if you don't do it correctly mm-hmm. but you don't you don't try to get better conditioned and stronger at the same time you have seasons like powerlifters are the only athletes in the world who don't understand the com- concept of seasons mm-hmm. really they don't like they're just always on season in season yeah i think the structure of powerlifting makes it more difficult but then you just have to construct your own season, right? Cause like you can, I can go on the USPA website and, you know, and well, not now because of coronavirus, but in general, coronavirus. <laughs> but in general, you know, find a competition any weekend, any weekend in some part of the States, Easy. you know, or, and there's a million feds, so you can do it in whatever federation. So I think what you have to do is you have to structure those periods where there's, you know, maybe a quarter of the year where you, where you, compete a couple times, you know, and like you said, you have to construct your own season. Exactly. So it's not like football where, you know, training camp starts, then the season is this long and that's it. Exactly. So it's how I would do it just for the purpose of, you know, this conversation, how I would do it. I would, the farther out that I am from a competition, the more variation there's going to be in my training, the more conditioning and the higher the reps. So what do a lot of people do? They think they're off season and they're conditioning and they do like two weeks of like sets of 10. Have you seen when people yeah, do that, how yeah. silly that is? Yeah. Like two set, three sets of 10 and they're dying. And then they do it the next week, three sets of 10. And then it's over. Yeah. They do it two weeks and that, that was their conditioning. Dude, you did not. 
on it. You did not put, put, you did not stress your body enough at all in order to bring about any sort of positive training adaptations at all. So the way I would do it, like I was saying, farther out from a competition, lots of variation, lots of conditioning. Like I'm talking two, three, four times a week of conditioning. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be in the gym. You can go out and run, you can jump rope, you can do boxing, you can bike, whatever, like do whatever, whatever you want. And then as you get closer to the competition, I'm talking, say like three, four months out, you start fading out the amount of variation, maybe decrease the amount of conditioning that you're doing two months out, barely doing any conditioning a month out, zero conditioning. You're barely, you're, you're basically doing squat bench and deadlift and that is it. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get in really bad fitness shape and in really good powerlifting shape. And you'll compete. You'll be the strongest that you'll ever be. And then you're going to barely be able to walk up and down stairs. And then you'll <laughs> restart the whole uh, process again. Mm-hmm. But what, how do you expect, honestly, and, and, and it makes you feel bad too. Like the, at least it makes me feel bad to just, do you imagine being in peak powerlifting shape the entire year? That no. you, I don't even feel human when I'm in my best powerlifting shape. Yeah. I feel like a tinfoil robot that just knows how to move up and down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything's tight and sore and your cardio's shit and you're probably sleeping poorly. And what else? You're just feeling like crap. Yeah. But anyway, so that's why it's so... Healthy sport, huh? <laughs> no sport is healthy. No sport is healthy sure. at the at the highest level. When you're really competing and pushing your body really hard every day, nothing's healthy. Yeah, there's a big difference between health and performance. Exactly. But the the factoring in and creating your own seasons, like we were talking about, at least sets you up for a certain average level of health over the course of a year and each year. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um so yeah, I mean that that is why it's so important to improve the efficiency of our recovery system and for us to regulate the amount of stress that we're putting upon ourselves so that we can, you know, positively lead to the changes in health and performance that we are that we're after. And that's where HRV comes in. So heart rate variability essentially helps us determine how much how much stress our body's under. And what kind of things are perceived by our body is as negative stress and how much stress we can tolerate in order to, to bring about these positive training adaptations. So in, 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 in other words is how can we minimize the interference from these stressors and we can maximize uh, recovery in order to make us the strongest possible. That's what we're trying to do. Now that we understand the basics of stress. Let's talk about the role that HRV plays in this whole messy and complicated process. But before we talk about that, we need to talk about the heartbeat because that is essentially one of the things that HRV is um, measuring. So our heart continuously delivers blood through the body. We already know that. And that's caused by a flow of electricity through the heart that repeats itself in cycles. And that's known as your heart rate. That's basically what you feel when you put your two fingers on your wrist or on the sides of your neck. Um, and the heart rate is the speed of your heartbeat and it's measured by the number of contractions per unit of time. So your heart rate might be 60 beats per minute when you're at rest, or it might be 120 beats per minute or 150 or 200 when you're exercising. 
But what we're talking about when we're talking about HRV is the, the period or the interval between these, between two heartbeats. And the thing here is that that interval can change from heartbeat to heartbeat. So our heart, our heart doesn't beat at regular intervals all the time, but rather the time at which it beats is variable. And that's what heart rate variability measures. So for example, if your heart rate is 60 beats per minute means that every minute, every second in one minute, every, every second or every second ish, your heart rate produces one beat. So every minute your heart produces right. 60 beats, but not a regular interval. So one beat might be at 1.05 seconds. The other one might be at 0 0.97 seconds. The other one might be at 1.2 seconds, etc. So they're not consistent intervals. And actually the more variation between intervals, the more fit, like the better your HIV score is. So the less, the less, um, monotonous your heartbeat is, um, the, the more fit you the are. The less regular? The less, sorry. Yeah. The less regular, the more fit your heart is. Um, so do you know why? Um, I don't think I remember like why that was I'm sure there's like a physiological reason for that, but I think it has to do with, because essentially the HRV, what it's measuring is the, the competition between your sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So it has to do something with that, but I don't know, maybe for I, the purposes of this, just know that a higher variability is better. Higher, higher variability yeah. of between heartbeats is better. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so our autonomic nervous system is essentially what controls all of our involuntary actions in our body, like our heart rate, our temperature, our breathing, our digestion. And it has two components. Like I was saying, it has our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. And they essentially take turns in running the show. So if we're relaxed or engaged in restful activities, like we're eating, mm -hmm. uh, just watching TV, recovering from workouts, our parasympathetic nervous system is supposed to be active. So your parasympathetic nervous system, if you paid attention in elementary school, is your rest <laughs> and digest response. But on the other hand, if we're, say, we're paying our taxes, that's stressful as heck. Or we're, we're um, arguing with our, fi our fiancé about what the topic of the podcast should be. <laughs> or we're taking a test. Sure. Or we're, we're about to take a crack at another deadlift PR. Then your sympathetic nervous system kicks in. And that's responsible for your activities associated with a uh, fire flight response. Now your vagus nerve is the nerve that acts as a brake to slow down your heart rate. So if we feel threatened, we get what's called vagal inhibition and, um, our heart rate accelerates and our variability decreases. Now the variability between heart rates, what it does is that it reflects the cardiac modulation by both the sympathetic and parasympathetic components of the autonomic nervous system with the brain being the master control of both uh, systems. Now the parasympathetic or the vagal system is the main determinant of variability between beats. Now, because there's a measurable connection between the brain, the brain, the autonomic nervous system and the heart, we can see how the nervous system reacts to stress throughout the variability between heartbeats, which actually captures and even reflects the changes in our autonomic nervous system modulation. And it gives us a good idea of what's going on inside the body. So that's what's cool about, about HRV. It kind of like gives you, a, gives you a look inside 
of the status of your nervous system by telling you, you know, whether it's high or low. So the higher the, the activity of your parasympathetic system, then the more variability there's going to be between heartbeats. So the more, um, the more active that system is, the better you're able to tap into your parasympathetic nervous system, the more variability is going to be and the higher HRV score, which means that you're going to have a higher ability to recover and you're going to be more ready for that subsequent training session. That makes sense. Um, there was actually a really cool study that they reference in one of Joel Jimenson's courses. Um, I look, he actually shared this study with me. I have it, but basically it was a study published in 2002 that discusses the impact of burnout and fatigue in different special forces personnel. He does a lot of work with, uh, military people. Um, they define burnout as a feeling of emotional exhaustion, which makes individuals, uh, makes it difficult for people to perform optimally. So they wanted to sort out why is it that some soldiers could handle the stress of the battlefield better than others. Mm -hmm. So they enrolled 41 soldiers in that study and they measured their level of burnout through a self-assessment inventory, a saliva sample to measure cortisol, adrenaline, and other stress hormone markers. And in order to assess their sympathetic and parasympathetic tone, they measured their HRV as they went through high periods of stress. And they wanted to understand the physiological traits that made some soldiers soldiers more fit to handle stress than others. So what they found was that individuals with higher levels of burnout had a significantly higher heart rate variability. So with what, sorry, huh? higher level of burnout. So a high oh. level of burnout means more resilience. So it's, it's a good thing. Oh, okay. So you're better able to tolerate stress. That's what a high level of burnout me meant in this study. Okay. So it meant that they are more resilient and that they were better able to withstand stressors and like you can see here you can see here like the 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 chart so it separates elite soldiers from general soldiers i think i'm missing a part but here it says so the conclusions we found that individuals that have better stress tolerance exhibit uh, significantly different patterns of hrb both at baseline and during stress wow and so just that ability to switch to parasympathetic yep and they're predictive. That, that makes perfect sense though. Yep. Yeah. So the HRV scores were actually predictive of how well they could perform when they were exposed to stressful situations. Wow. Like that's how impactful that was. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, this is not, this is not even like new you know, new, uh, discoveries, this HRV study stemmed back to 1868. Wow. Why do you think it's just getting popularized now because the technology is catching up yeah. with it and how to track it? Yeah. The technology is catching up and there's, and, and they're more, more accessible from a, from a price standpoint and from a user standpoint as well. Like I think before, sure. in order to, for you to measure HRV, you would have to go to an ex phase lab or something like that, or go to a cardiologist. Where like or a heart rate monitor. For, yeah, for like a, a year or who knows, like what the technology was back there. Mm -hmm. But it was in the mid 60s when they discovered that there was actually a measurable connection between the brain, your autonomic nervous system and your heart. And it was then when they understood that the nervous system responds to, to, to stress. Mm -hmm. In basic terms, the HRV, what it does, it's a marker that reflects the modulation 
or kind of like imagine it's like a tug of war between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic or vagal component of your autonomic nervous system. So the less variability, the more sympathetic you're in a more sympathetic state and the more variability you're in a more parasympathetic dominant state. So in an ideal scenario, we would have the capability to be able to switch back and forth between these systems as we need. Um, but we live in an era that's plagued with stress where we're like constantly bombarded by notifications in our phone, where we have very little downtime to, to recharge our batteries. And we live in a sympathetic state, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think Joel Jamison talks about this or, or someone else talked about it, maybe Brian McKenzie, but this is why I talk about the importance of being able to train your parasympathetic nervous system the same way you train sympathetic system. It's like, all right, you're going to the gym, you're spending two, three hours, four hours training. And that's cool. You're training your, your sympathetic system there. You're training your, your, your nervous system to, to be, be alert, to be alert and aroused and stressed and release and release adrenaline and cortisol and, and be stiff and you know, all these things. Sure. But then, and you spend enough time training that, but then who, like how many power lifter or lifters in general do you know that spend time training their parasympathetic system? None. So we, so we end up in this like override of sympathetic state where I felt in the past, I, I, on, I genuinely think that one of the reasons why I felt my anxiety increase, like over the last few years is because I neglected my, my conditioning, you know, I neglected my parasympathetic state. It's like, I was beating my, beating my, my body to the ground at the gym and then continue stressing out PT school, stressing out about my grades, stressing out about my finances, my job travels, you know, not really, not really doing anything about that. It's like the, that conversation we had that one time about how important people say that, that your mental game is in sports. It's like, people say it's like 90% mm -hmm. is mental. And then you're like, ah, cool. So what do you do about it? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> it's like, really? There's no advice. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's if you, it, I, I guess I, I hope that that so far this conversation helps you understand why it's important, why it, 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 meditating is not for sissies, you know, like, right. you, like meditating should be meditating, yoga, mindfulness practice. And, and this could be my, when I say mindfulness practice, like for me, sewing is mindfulness practice, you know, mm -hmm. just oh. being like focused on one thing just for the sake of that thing, no means to an end and being present. Right. You know, being present and like letting your mind and your body relax. I think that should be part of, of every, of everyone's program. And mm -hmm. it's important that you learn how to downregulate. Do you think people also make a mistake in the way they choose to quote unquote relax? Because like, you know, even sometimes I'll come home, we'll watch Netflix and we've been watching the show uh, Kingdom, which is a great show. <laughs> But I'm freaking stressed the whole time I'm watching that show. Like I'm yeah. not actually relaxing. No. People are dying. Yeah. Everyone's finances are <laughs> fucked. Like people, everyone's cheating on everyone. It's a, like a horrible thing. I'm stressed the entire time. Like I feel like I'm in fi a fight or flight mode watching that show. You know, is that is that legitimate though? Like yeah, am I? I'm in a sympathetic sure. state probably watching that yeah, show. Yeah, you're, right? you're not really re uh, resting. Yeah. yeah, the whole Netflix and chill is backwards. Yeah. Well, depends on, I guess, I mean, you, you can be watching blue planet. Love that. That's pretty, uh, restful, yeah. meditative and uh, mindful, I guess. 
Yeah. Connecting you with nature, right? And there's something soothing about a British person's voice. I know. I love that. <laughs> Man, let's watch that tonight. Yeah, all right. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, look, I feel like w whenever you talk to highly effective people or like, um, not high achievers, what do you call them? High performance, high performers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They always have some sort of mindfulness practice incorporated into their routine. Mm -hmm. Like always, whether it's because they have a ton more stress, maybe they're CEOs or, or owners of businesses that, you know, the, the stress of having to pay people or I don't know, you know, but all of them have incorporated some sort of mindfulness practice into their routine. Look at your dad. Mm -hmm. The whole grounding thing, flow state in the morning, like spending an hour just like in the sauna, meditating, like touching the grass with your feet. Like it sounds so hippie. And when you're young, you're like, oh my God, that's whack, right? Like, I don't need to do that. I'm just fine. But honestly, like, I mean, it'll get to a point where I guess your body will force, to, force you to do that. But sure. don't get to that point. I think it's better to be proactive rather than reactive in these cases. Yeah. Agreed. Create the habits before you actually need them. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's switch gears and talk about how we can actually use HRV to inform our, our training. Um, okay. So if you have a high HRV score, it means that your body has a greater ability to tolerate stress or that you're more resilient at that time and you can recover better from previous activity where a low HRV score means that the body is currently under stress and struggling to recover. Mm -hmm. Now you also have obviously your heart rate and, you know, people tend to associate uh, lower heart rates to better cardiovascular fitness and it's fine. I mean, it's, it's a good metric, but it's better used during exercise. Whereas HRV is better used after. at rest. Yeah. At rest. That's why the app wanted me to take my uh, heart rate in the morning and all that stuff. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, there's certain apps that will prompt you to take your measurements, especially if you're not being constantly monitored. So if you're using an app like that, then you can, um, you can, you need to take your, your HIV score at the same time of day, uh, preferably upon waking up and in the same body position because you want to keep, keep as many variables consistent as mm -hmm. possible. You don't want to, you don't want to change things up every day. Um, and then you need to establish a baseline. I think this is the most important thing, you know, wearing an aura ring or a Fitbit or actually a Fitbit doesn't measure your, your HRV, I don't think, or any other, uh, HRV device uh, device. device. Um, if you have a, a single random reading or even like uh, short period of time data, that doesn't mean much. You, you really need to measure your HRV every day for a prolonged period of time in order to better understand the deviations from baseline and how those variations essentially affect your performance and recovery capabilities. If so, say I have a higher HRV score than you. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything, no. right? Like it doesn't mean my heart rate variability is better. It just means that's my baseline and I need to be tracking the difference from the baseline. I mean, no, I mean, I guess I think you could have better, you know, if you have a higher HRV score, it means you can tap into your parasympathetic nervous system better than I can. Okay. But for the purpose of like making changes to training, it, I just have to look at my data and how it changes across the weeks in relation to my training. 
Got it. Right. But yeah, I mean, you should be striving to, to increase your HRV score as much as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so now you know how to collect the, the raw data. If you have, if you don't have a, a device that constantly measures it, but we have to understand what that means. So the key to, to actually using this data as a performance marker is you need to understand what it means. So when and how to change your plan to yield the best resort, uh, results. Basically, you need to understand that high isn't always good and low isn't always bad. It's what I was telling you about um, just how it relates to your training. So a single reading um, can tell you maybe a general estimate of where you're standing that day in terms of your health, your sleep quality and your and your stress and in the duration of the exercise, the duration and intensity from your the exercise you did in the past day or two and how it's affecting your body. Mm -hmm. But what's important is to look at the trend over time because that's what's most powerful at guiding uh, your modifications to the plan that you want to make. So especially because the exposure to certain stressors may have a delayed response on HRV and therefore it's, not, it's only going to be significant if we look at it, if we look at an entire week or two or sometimes a month worth of data at least. So, um, yeah, like you need to, it, it's difficult. I guess it's difficult to really learn how to interpret that data and, and you have to do it for consistent periods of time so that you can understand what they really mean. And it goes back to a conversation we're having about whether or not they correlate with a, with a period or the block that you're training at and, and whether that's a good or a bad thing, right? Because it's a low HRV score, score is not always a bad thing, like we said. Mm -hmm. Um. And finally, as far as the interpretation of the HRV score, you also have to pay attention to the daily and weekly fluctuations of your HRV score. So for some people, it might change plus or minus five points. For some people, it might change plus or minus 10 points or plus or minus 15 points. And that's the norm of, of daily fluctuation. So that's why it's important to also look at that. You should um, only be measuring yourself against yourself, not against other right, right. scores. But also seeing what the normal amount of fluctuation is for you. That's yeah, also, that's what I mean. Yeah, like that's what, what's important. normal for you might be a really high fluctuation for somebody else exactly. and vice versa. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, HRV is, is, is a powerful measurement, but it's not perfect. Um, and it's much more powerful when, when it's considered within the context or big picture. Because HRV alone, it just indicates that something's potentially, you know, stressing or taxing the system, but it doesn't tell you what exactly that is. So... You got to keep track of things like your sleep, your alcohol consumption, your nutrition, how hard you're training, because all of those things in conjunction with the HRV will increase your, your ability to make more informed decisions in training. So let's talk about how to hack your HRV, so how to get your HRV so this, score. This is the juicy stuff. Yeah. This is, this is, this is the part, this is the part that everyone wants to hear if you care. So actually Joel Jimenson calls this type of training recovery driven fitness, which I love it. You know, I, I've been saying since the last time I got really hurt, I kept saying in the absence of health, there is no strength. You know, mm -hmm. you, I think, and this is another one of my quotes is if you keep chasing strength, you know, you're in this mindset of how strong, how fast can I get strong, but you got to switch that mindset to how long can I stay injury free? You know, mm -hmm. it's a fine balance because you also don't want to 
you also you also have to be okay with the fact that you have to push yourself really hard that you're going to be in pain that you're going to be uncomfortable and that you're going to you know it's going to be a challenge right but it's a matter of like finding that balance and understanding that you're in it for the long run or not understanding but if you want to achieve you know your ultimate potential then it's going to be something that you have to do for the long run right yeah so going from how hard can i go to how fast can i recover and essentially being proactive about the strategies that you can implement to achieve that goal. So the goal here in order in terms of the HRV is we need to quiet down our sympathetic system and turn on higher parasympathetic system. So how can we do that? The first thing, and, and, and I uh, apologize to all the powerlifters lifters that are listening to this and hate to burst your bubble, but this is the ugly truth, is you got to add cardio to your strength training program. Oof. You lost a few people there. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, you know, adding aerobic exercise to your routine improves your muscle recovery, improves your overall conditioning, your lifespan and longevity. Uh, you guys want to live a long life or uh, you just care about squatting 600 pounds? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that one's important. As a side note, mm -hmm. it, this is something that annoyed me. That I've seen, if, like I've seen a few posts about this, or a lot over the course of my involvement in the strength community. But when people say strength training is easy, like when they're like, "Oh, it's it's not complicated. It's easy. You just do a certain yeah, X Y Z exercise for a few times a week for X amount of years." It's like, no, strength training is easy if you're a complete noob because anything you do is going to work. But if you squat a hundred pounds or 200 pounds or 300 pounds and you're telling me strength training is easy you what yeah of course that's easy dude like i squatted 300 pounds when i was 14 years old mm -hmm. you know what i mean like that uh, yeah i but, think any go from 600 to 700 go from 700 to 750 and tell me how easy that is it requires a lot more thought intention um the variation in the way you train to make progress down the road once diminishing returns are small and a lot more thought processes involved right like it's what i always say training is simple until you plateau stop making progress or until you have to navigate through injuries or strength and weaknesses or whatever and then it becomes a really complex algorithm you know then it becomes something really really challenging because 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 you don't your body doesn't work the same way as mine and his body doesn't work the same way as yours right so you have to every year that literally every year that goes by you have to reinvent yourself yeah. you have to you have to change up the way that you're training you know that whatever you have written in your cute little notebook about how you broke the record in 2012 is not the same way you're going to break another record in 2015 right you know because you're you're lifting more your recovery capabilities change you're aging you know, there's, there's just so many different variables. Also, everything is easy. If you don't have a goal, everything's easy. If you don't have the, don't the pressure, <laughs> if you yeah. don't have pressure, if you don't have a time, a timeline, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, okay. I want to get strong sometime. That's so much easier than I have to lift 500 pounds at the animal cage in four months. You know how yeah. much more added stress that is and pressure and expectation and anticipation, you know? Sure. And, and it just like that timeline is, 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 is everything cutting weight, being in front of people, sure. having to perform. And there's also a huge difference between 
just casually getting stronger over whatever time period. Like, okay, can you go and squat twice a week for five years and keep making progress? Maybe, but it's like, that's very, very different than trying to make the most progress. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Arbitrary progress. Okay. Anyone can make arbitrary progress. You know, I can, I can do chin-ups three times a week, you know, and eventually I'll be doing more chin-ups, but it's like, is that the best way? Yeah. It is the most chin-ups that you could do. Exactly. Yeah. Nah, I'm getting the to the end of my sister. rope here. I think that's a good place to cut it. No, hold on. There's one more, bro. Oh, there's one more. Oh, yeah. Don't want to leave that out. Yeah. Okay. So, so far, uh, we were talking about, okay, hugging your HRV and focusing on recovery driven fitness. We talked about concurrent training. So adding cardio to your strength training program. And again, don't worry guys. There's actually a really good study that Dr. Mike Surdos posted over in, um, their mass Love you guys. I love mass though. It's basically a place where they, where they, um, interpret research and make it accessible to people. So they, they, they talked about a study there that will make you feel better where they wanted to figure out what the, you know, they wanted to see what the literature said about cardio and strength training. And basically what they found was that prolonged cardio. So more than 30 minutes in the form of long steady state cardio or high intensity may attenuate strength, uh, gains, but moderate intensity cardio. So at 60 to 70% of intensity for 30 minutes, two times per week does not attenuate strength and hypertrophy adaptations. And again, you know, this is, this is random in the sense that it, it, it might not apply to you, right? Like you might be able to do three or four cardio sessions a week at moderate intensity or high intensity without suffering at all in terms of strength, especially if you're a beginner lifter, like that's not going to do anything to you. I think that the more specific, uh, specify, uh, the more specificity or the more, the more you get into one sport and the more you're focusing on one goal, the more careful you have to be with what, what, what cardio modalities you incorporate in your training. That's why, for example, for me, the more advanced that I got and the deeper I got into my powerlifting career, um, the more specific, even my cardio sessions became. So I started using things like kettlebell swings, lunges, um, yo carries mm-hmm. th- that can still, you know, can be performed in a shorter time cap at a, you know, faster speed with shorter rest intervals to still get my heart rate up, but I'm still performing exercises that are quote unquote, more relevant, relevant to the, the, the ultimate goal. Yeah. There's still strength movements. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, cardio doesn't mean go out in a run or like do boring elliptical. Like you, you can get your heart rate up doing pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. Although um, I do actually like the elliptical, I do uh, like love a, the elliptical. elliptical stepper thing that we have is yeah, amazing. It's amazing. Um, okay. So you're going to do that. And the second thing is breathing exercises. I'm super excited actually to have Brian McKenzie on our podcast. I have to call him today. Uh, but basically it's just, again, this is part, I guess it's part of meditation, you know, diaphragmatic breathing. And it's something that you can do literally anytime and anywhere to instantly stimulate your vagus nerve and lower the stress response that's associated with the sympathetic nervous system. And these types of techniques actually stem back to the 1970s when yogis popularized the importance of deep breathing as a central component of maintaining uh, balance within the autonomic nervous system. So there's tons of good research on uh, effective diaphragmatic breathing, and it doesn't have to be complicated at all. Any type of deep, slow diaphragmatic breathing will do the trick. 
And essentially what you want to do is fill up, fill up your belly with, or the lower part of your lungs or your stomach, um, while trying to keep your chest and neck relaxed, taking a deep breath in and trying to exhale for longer than you inhaled. So if you take three to four seconds to inhale, try to make the exhale six to eight seconds. I need to work on that. I'm a shallow breather if I don't think about it consciously. Yeah, you are. You are. Um, that also, and you can, you can even do those types of exercises while you're doing cardio. Like if you're doing a brisk walk or if you're on the elliptical as well to improve your CO2 tolerance. Oh, you had me do that on the elliptical. How hard is that? It is. But honestly, I, I feel, I, an, even... I honestly feel an immediate sense of, uh, calm after that. When you're doing it though, it's really stressful. Like, I know. Even though it's super controlled, it's almost anxiety provoking. Like the feeling. That it you is. Get. Yeah. Cause you're gasping for air. You're like. Your, your body is overriding your will to hold your breath. Yeah. Yeah. Explain, explain what you, uh, what you had me do. Yeah. So when you, you're, you're doing something, you know, 60%, 60, 70%, I had Hayden on the elliptical. And basically what you do is you, you take three normal breaths and at the final exhale, you blow all of your air out while you continue uh, doing, moving your body, doing your, uh, cardio and hold that for as exhale and then hold that for as long as you can before you take a, a breath in but when you take your breath in don't allow yourself to to take a big gulp of air but rather try to take that breath from your nose in a slow and controlled manner and then take three normal breaths again like um, in through your nose out through your mouth and then start it over again do like 10 reps like that it's, it, 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 I, it, at least for me, it makes me feel invigorated afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's very uncomfortable. It's yeah, very it uncomfortable, it but afterwards it feels really good. I don't know. Anyway. And the final thing obviously is nutrition. I think it's really undervalued, especially in the powerlifting community where strength seems to be the one and only priority that athletes make. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that a lot of other sports have already realized the importance of like sleep, nutrition, recovery, like they do ice baths, Norma techs, whatever. But powerlifters are like, go, 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 eh? It's only about what you do in the gym. You know, I think a lot of athletes are like that up to a certain point. Then they get to like the college level and they have, the team has nutritionists, they have coaches, they have all these very well-educated people who are teaching them things. Whereas there's obviously not as much money in powerlifting. There's not a lot of schools that have powerlifting programs. So you're, it's kind of just the people who are motivated to find out on their own can attempt to figure it out but a lot of people are just say screw it and they don't even yeah. attempt so. yeah um yeah so pay attention to your nutrition um it's basically dude eat real food don't eat too much food eat just enough food and eat plants mm -hmm. on top of all the other stuff that you eat yeah when adults tell me that they, just, they don't eat vegetables because they don't like them I'm like, you're an adult man. it's so irresponsible that's not a legitimate reason do you like paying your taxes no you have to do that too you know <laughs> exactly like, grow up exactly. i don't like vegetables exactly so yeah i mean some of my additional uh recommendations here would be drink plenty of water add sodium to your food <clears throat> um Avoid eating foods that you're allergic or sensitive to. <clears throat> Alex. <laughs> it, honestly, that sounds like a one that's like, duh. But it isn't. But so many because people Alex. eat so many things that are, just don't agree with them and they just suffer through it. I mean, there's a whole industry built on that. 
Pepto-Bismol Tums, all that <laughs> stuff is literally designed so you can eat like an asshole and, and hide like, the symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But it's like, that's not good. No. If you walk around with Tums in your bag, just so you can have it on hand all the time. That's messed up. Yeah, you need to do it. I know a lot of people who do that. Who do that. Mitch from the Mitch. gym. He always he has a giant like Costco huge thing of Tums with him no. all the time. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't eat things that you're sensitive to or that you're allergic to. And avoid consuming inflammatory foods in excess. So anything that's processed, I'm not saying don't have it. I'm just saying don't be a pig. Yeah. Right? Like everything just, in moderation. Everything it sounds moderation. cliche, but people yeah. say it all the time because it's true. And then here are some extra ideas of ways to increase your HRV score or get your body in a more parasympathetic state if you don't even if you don't want to measure your your HRV. Manage your stresses. So you know. Dump don't, your girlfriend. Dump your girlfriend. To manage your stress. Jesus, dude, what the hell? <laughs> um, sleep more, have alcohol in moderation. Some people even say uh, cold showers. I mean, that one's pretty popular. I don't really know this. I, I, can't, I can't remember the science behind that. Mm -hmm. uh, but cold shower therapies have been shown to increase the speed at which your mitochondria replenishes and regenerates ATP. And this, that's, the whole, wow. like, that's the whole premise behind getting your HIV getting your your ability to create more energy and your ability to have more energy available so you can take it to your recovery processes so yeah i mean i hope that that made sense i know that was that was a lot but um i guess in summary looking at heart variability allows us to get an idea of the activity of our parasympathetic system so whether your body isn't under acute stress or repairing and remodeling, as well as figuring out whether or not the training program is taking us in the right direction or breaking us. So monitoring your HRV and switching our mentality from how hard can I train to how fast can I recover is what will allow us to train only as hard as what we're ready to do in order to not only avoid injuries, but also maximize our gains. So for all of you people who always say um, that they don't want to take the rest days, don't do that. It's not me. <laughs> yeah, not me. I, I love my rest days. And yeah, I mean, just remember, you, you grow and you make progress. You get stronger when you're recovering, if you're recovering. So you have to prioritize that with an approach that you have to prioritize your recovery and, and, and put that in your, in your approach, you know? So that you can actually see the results that you're working so hard to get. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to tag us on Instagram at Hybrid Unlimited for a chance to win some hybrid apparel. Swaggity swag, swag, swag. As always, thank you guys for listening and I'll catch you guys next time. Bye.